It's Friday the 5th of November. This is the Climate Alarm Clock. This week's top headlines. COP26 is underway. Climate Action Plan is released this week. And emissions are back to record levels. Also coming up on this week's show, we chat to Caroline White live from COP26. Kira chats with Little Green Growers. We continue our collaboration with Irish Doctors for Environment. And Ellen explains the carbon cycle. Hello and welcome to the Climate Alarm Clock, your weekly Irish climate news podcast. I'm Dara Wynne and we are in the depths of COP26 at the moment. We've been a little underwhelmed by the goings-on over there, but pleasantly surprised to see the breadth of coverage it's gotten in Ireland. So if you are still tuning into us, despite all that coverage in the national media, to get our take on all things climate this week, then we really, really appreciate it. We've all the usual features coming up and a chat with Caroline White live at COP26. But as always, we start with the news and I'm joined by Kira Tiernan and Anna Pringle. How are you doing? Good, Dara. Thank you. All good here, Dara. Thanks. Good to see you. You too. You too. Um, so how have you been finding the week with all of COP26 and the goings on over there? To be honest, Dara, I found it kind of overwhelming in ways. Um, there's so much coming out and it's, it's great to see the coverage in Ireland. It's great to see Morning Ireland being all about climate, for example. Um, but there's just so much everywhere on Twitter and the general media. And it's, it's kind of hard to get away from in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, it is overwhelming, as you say, Anna, to always be confronted with this climate news. But it's also a really positive thing that people in my regular life and not climate ni- life um you have one of those <laughs> not climate life <laughs> the, it's it's encouraging to to hear people who are from my not climate life engaging with cop26 knowing what it's about knowing that there that there's it's a really important climate summit whereas um before you know um without the 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 media coverage regular people weren't given the opportunity to engage with cop yeah and i think for me what i find overwhelming is that it is like it's laying out all the stuff we already know you know about how bad it is about maybe how much leaders don't get it and it's all there right in front of you so i think it's like there's nothing new being learned but it's just bringing it all back and reminding us of how serious this problem is and how much we really need to take action so what's the good news from cop uh, oh, there, there has been some good news. I mean, you have to look at things like India coming out with their net zero pledge for 2070. Now, you can argue it's too long and it's net zero, but it's it's a progress from where they were. It's progress. You can look at the deforestation agreement or rather the reversing deforestation agreement. And you've got countries like Brazil signing up to that. So that's mm-hmm. very significant. Mm-hmm. Closer to home, you've got the methane agreement where um, there's a pledge to reduce methane emissions by, what, 30%? Yeah. Globally. yeah, and that's really significant because methane is a very potent gas. So if we can reduce methane immediately, that radically improves our chances of staying within two degrees um, for the next century. Yeah, and, and on that then, so some of the modelers have ran all these updated pledges and have suggested that if we meet all these targets that have been pledged at COP26, we will limit warming to 1.9 degrees. So 1.9 degrees is still a pretty bad outcome, but it's far better than where we are headed. But I suppose the thing 
is that it's one thing to make these pledges, but it's another thing to then actually have the actions to follow up on them. And I think we saw that example kind of nowhere better than in Michal Martin's speech at COP and then what he said when he came home. Yeah, and he, he was very articulate on Morning Ireland and even Ushin Coughlin of Friends of the Earth said it was the best he'd ever heard any Taoiseach on climate issues. And that was fine until somebody followed up and they said, oh, well, no, the methane stuff doesn't really apply here. It's only We're only going to have a 10% target because and that's a 30 percent is a global target so mm-hmm. so you know it's like what they say in glasgow stays in glasgow unfortunately yeah um, um yeah more inspiring some more a more inspiring speech um i think came from the prime minister of barbados and uh, mia motley um i think we were all quite moved by her speech um she used a line 1.5 to survive um and that that really resonated with me um and i think you know going towards 1.9 if we can stay under 2 degrees that will be a huge achievement and a huge challenge in in itself but we still need to work towards 1.5 and take the radical action that we can to try and 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 stay below 1.5 degrees she yeah. was very powerful. Yeah. yeah, I think we were all I think we were all moved by that because I think it is I think it just she just cut through the nonsense and that she said at one stage simply put when will leaders lead or people are watching and or people are taking note and are we really going to leave Scotland without the resolve and the ambition that is sorely needed to save lives and to save our planet? Are we so blinded and hardened that we can no longer appreciate the cries of humanity? And I think it just sort of lays out uh, lays bare exactly how bad things are and how much action we need to take. Powerful stuff. It is powerful. And it's not theory coming from Barbados or the Maldives exactly. or those low-lying islands. That That's is, experience. Yeah, it's they are seeing their existence being challenged yes. by this. Yeah, yeah. their yeah, very yeah. lives. And she that's what she said in the, spe- the speech as well, that that this these failures are measured in the cost of lives. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So anyway, <laughs> but meanwhile, um, we saw Boris Johnson making his football themed speech and then getting a private jet back to London because he couldn't yeah. spend three or four hours on a train. Yeah. So, and, yeah. and oil companies being there and people from the global south not being able to access parts of the conference. So, yeah. 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 And I'd say BP and ExxonMobil, no wonder they were um, happy about the idling cars and private jets um, because they had some earnings announcements as well, didn't they? Yeah, so BP made a mere $3.3 billion in the third quarter of this year and ExxonMobil, the biggest fossil fuel company in the world, just announced they made $6.8 billion, and that's profit, that's not earnings, that's profit, wow. and increased their earnings of over $7.4 billion in the same period in 2020. So these are very, very profitable companies. Yeah, yeah. And I think that also kind of lays bare the fact that COP26 can sort of be construed as a talking shop that while we're all, while world leaders are saying we're going to do this, 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 this and this, things are just carrying on and the, the fossil fuels are still being burned and the emissions are still being pumped into the atmosphere. And also in terms of the distribution of money, I mean, Michal Martin was praised for increasing our contribution to the Global Climate Fund to 225 million. And that pales in comparison to the money that these fossil fuels are making. And then also related to the emissions, we've seen, Anna, about global emissions have bounced back with a vengeance from the lockdown. 
Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, we did see a little bit of a dip with the pandemic in 2020, reducing activity. But this year, it looks like global CO2 emissions are shooting back to record levels. And at the rate that they are increasing, that 1.5 degrees um, target will be exceeded in about 11 years if, if it continues. Wow. So speaking of emissions and budgets and all that kind of thing, the Climate Action Plan was released this week. It was a big, big day for Ireland. Um, on Thursday, the Climate Action Plan was finally released. Um, and that is setting out our actions for to 2030 to achieve the 51% reduction in emissions to 2030. So, but we're already seeing a lot of rumblings about it. Yeah, mm. so we, we with our recording schedule, we haven't had a full look at the plan as this episode is going out. So we'll have a deep dive into it next week. But what are the early... Well, as ever, there are leaks, Dara. There are always leaks. Um, so the plan is going to mandate... Things like um, increases in electric heating systems, retrofitting, energy. They're going to have sectoral targets for all of the various sectors in terms of their emissions. Um, and there's an estimate that it will cost about $125 billion between now and 2030 to achieve the measures in the plan. But just to give you some context for that, that sounds like a lot. That's approximately two bank bailouts. Or that's about five years worth of Exxon Mobil's profits at current uh, at, at current quarterly levels. That's a good way of looking at it. Actually, I hadn't even thought of that connection. Um, yeah. Well, what that translates to me is that 125 billion is actually quite achievable. Um, when you put it in the context of two bank bailouts, okay, we already did that. Five years of of Exxon Mobil. Okay. Well, you know, let's just get it off them. <laughs> well, uh, but also you have to look at what's the return on investment, you know, so mm. to use That's the right. financial language, what's the return on investment? And arguably the citizens didn't get much return from the bank bailouts, but... Mm. Whereas a livable planet from this... Yeah, I think we, we'll all benefit from that. Yeah, I'd, I'd be happy enough with that now. Mm-hmm. Anna, you mentioned energy costs there in relation to the Climate Action Plan, and that's kind of where we're going for the not climate news story this week. Yeah, Dara, um, we've all been seeing petrol prices going up at the pumps um, and cost of electricity going up. It's been announced every day. I was struck by the Irish Independent last Saturday. The front page headline was price squeeze at pumps as our cost of living soars. So I had a look at it and there was a couple of pages, two page spread inside as well. And I thought surely there'd be some reference to emissions or climate or whatever. Nothing. Not one word. Um, and it was all about... Our what has burning fuel got to do with climate change? Yeah, really. <laughs> you know, what emissions could we be talking about? What does cost of living mean anyway? Um, but it was all about, and I mean, the real hardships that people will face because of prices going up. But there was nothing in it about the ultimately what is the cost of our living and the way we live. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's some change required to our dependency on cars. Yeah, that's quite striking to me that, you know... There's no mention of how our living is affected, um, how our health is affected and how our well-being is is affected by our reliance on cars. Um, let, let it be through emissions or through a lower quality of life or dependency on cars. That impacts um, society's health and well-being as well as as the, fin- the financial cost. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I, th- I think to come full circle to, to cop, Professor Brian O'Gallagher from UCC is over there. And what he said, I think, is really relevant in the context of that article. He said, what really strikes me 
is that not just in an Irish context but internationally is that the penny hasn't dropped at all about what we need to do both in terms to change things so that we are not releasing massive amounts of emissions but also in terms of adapting to climate change and that story is the prime example where it's talking about this cost of living it's talking about petrol prices with no reference at all to the fact that we need to be moving away to reduce emissions to limit warming but we need to be adapting and there are so many opportunities in that adaptation to have to have better better quality of life um so yeah i think we I think really need to be joining those dots well. yeah, yeah. yeah yeah for sure but dar we have a lovely story to finish with Woo-hoo. yeah so um for a really positive um climate story um, environmentalist Catherine Cleary um, is running a social enterprise which she calls Pocket Forests and Pocket Forests are basically a cultivation of native biodiversity and trees in um, small and awkward urban spaces. Um, she describes how easy it is to take one step for nature so that it can take 10 steps for itself, um, which I think is a beautiful sentiment. Um and there was an uh, there was a feature on RTE News about this. Yes, is that right? yeah. Th- so RTE showed um, native trees growing right out of a skip in the middle of Dublin city centre, um, which is just a wonderful use of space, a wonderful reimagination of the future and the way that our urban centres um, can have their own biodiversity and ecosystems. Um, and they also interviewed some students from the Presentation Secondary School Warren Mount, um, which was really inspiring. Um, the students talked about leaving a positive legacy for the schools and the environment, which really moved me. They, they had planted some trees in the school, had they? Yes, yeah, sorry. They planted some trees in the school and they were super keen on checking the progress of the trees um, and looking after them and, and being uh, stewards of the environment and in their school. And leaving a legacy. And it's just lovely. I mean, leadership mm. from school children is just fantastic. Absolutely. And that's 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 the way that I would love our world leaders to frame um, climate action through leaving a positive legacy for our home, our communities and the planet. That's great. And like one of the things we like to do on this podcast is also to share things where we can do things ourselves. And I was very inspired by this story because they actually have seeds available. So you can go and get seeds yes. for native trees and you can start your own pocket forest. So what a lovely idea. We might do a climate alarm clock pocket forest. What do you reckon, guys? <laughs> that, would be, that would be lovely. Sarah's back garden? <laughs> <laughs> um, Great stuff. That is a lovely way to finish the news roundup today. Thanks very much. Thank you, Dara. And Kira, we'll hear from you a little later on with the event guide. Absolutely. Thanks, Dara. And I will give you the rest of the day off. <laughs> you are listening to the Climate Alarm Clock, Ireland's weekly climate news podcast. And still to come, we continue our collaboration with Irish Doctors for the Environment. Ellen explains the carbon cycle. And we'll be chatting to Caroline White live from COP26. But first, it's time to continue our sustainable business feature. So we're handing over to Kira Daly, who is chatting to Little Green Growers. Today, I am joined by Denise Rocks, a Galway-based organic farmer and owner of Little Green Growers. Little Green Growers is an online store which sells certified organic Irish plants, seeds and gardening supplies. Denise started the business with her husband, Stefan. And together, the two are on a mission to make it easy to grow sustainable food and flowers at home. So, Denise, thank you for joining us on the Climate Alarm Clock. Could you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to start Little Green Growers? 
Well, my husband and I, we were always concerned about climate change and biodiversity loss. Uh, we were living abroad and we decided to come back to Ireland. And when we got our little cottage by the sea, we had land with it and we wanted to do something with the land, but keep that in harmony with nature and keep it as wild as possible. So we started out supplying organic produce to the restaurants. These were like wild herbs, edible flowers, things that we could grow without destroying the land um, and things that were growing wild. Um, so we were doing that when COVID-19 struck. And as I'm sure everyone knows, the restaurants closed and we were faced with closing the business. At the same time, we saw that there was this huge interest from people in connecting with nature and growing their own food. You know, everyone was getting really excited about how they could manage to be a bit more self-sustainable. So we realized that, you know, we were perfectly placed to help other people on their journey to sustainability and help reduce their carbon footprint, start growing their own food. We pivoted the business. So we pivoted Little Green Growers and we started growing organic veg, salad, tomato and edible flower seedlings. Um, we send those across Ireland then so people can quickly start growing and harvesting their own food. And then this reduces their reliance on supermarkets as well. And of course, it's great to feel independent and know that you've got something in your garden you can eat. Um, as, as we saw, then people were gaining confidence um, from growing this, the seedlings because we were sending the seedlings to their door. They pop them in the ground and it's relatively easy then to grow them. So we saw people were getting more confident. Uh, so we expanded then to a seed range and that allowed people who were getting a bit more confident to experiment and say, right, I'm going to grow from seed and learn that way as well. And that would further reduce their food miles and the carbon footprint. And then um, we added a free garden guru advice service. And this was for you know anyone who's, who's, who's connected with us, any customer of ours. So this is like an online forum where we help answer growing questions and you know people can send in their questions and, and we help them like, you know, it can even be what plant is this or when should I harvest or how should I cook it, you know, so we try and we try and provide a, a wraparound service. Uh, so that's that's how we started Little Green Growers and that's where we're going at the moment. Yeah. Amazing. And so compared to the bigger kind of um, businesses that do similar work to what you do, what would the difference be when people buy from a small business like yourself compared to them? Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, there's obviously local business, local economy. So what we do goes back into the local economy. Um, so we, we, when we expanded our range, we partnered with other organic growers. So all the products or most of the products in our store are, are, are Irish and certified organic. So when you're buying from us, you're not just buying from us, you're supporting up to four or five other businesses as well. So it has a real impact, you know, in the local community and across Ireland. Um, but in terms of the plants themselves, our plants are hand grown in Ireland and we use minimum inputs. And so they have a very low carbon footprint when you compare them to the plants that you might see in a regular uh, garden store, or garden centre. So those plants might be imported from abroad, raised under lights um, and, you know, with a huge amount of heat applied. So that's uh, those are some of the distance differences, I'm sorry, I should say, between us and the regular garden stores. Um, and just overall makes for healthier, hardier, hardier plants. You've got a lower carbon footprint, less waste um, and quicker, easier results in the garden, really. Well, you've sold the idea to me, Denise. So thank you so much for joining us. Of course, for anyone who would like to learn more about Little Green Growers, you can find out more at their website, www.littlegreengrowers.ie. That was Kira Daly chatting to Little Green Growers here on the Climate Alarm Clock podcast, Ireland's weekly climate news podcast. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Climate Alarm Clock and on Twitter at The Climate Alarm. Now it's time for our collaboration with Irish Doctors for Environment. I spoke to Esmeralda Perez this week where we're looking at the area of climate and medical education. And I started by asking Esmeralda to introduce herself. Yeah, so uh, thanks for inviting me, first of all. Um, my name is Esmeralda Perez and I'm a third year medical student at NUI Galway. 
Um, I've been part of IDE for about a year now, and I'm the current student lead for the medical curricula working group this year. And it's that area of the medical curriculum we're going to be looking at today. But before that, the climate links to health are gone pretty mainstream now, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. So both the WHO and also prominent scientific journals such as The Lancet are talking about the impact of climate change on health and how it is such a big threat really to health that we really need to address this moving forward. Um, And the Lancet Commission on Climate Change and Health has even declared climate change to be the biggest global health threat of the 21st century. So it's quite, it's quite serious. Yeah. So does the fact that climate has been identified as a health problem by such reputable bodies mean that it's reflected in what medical students learn? Well, you would uh, hope so, seeing that it's so serious, but unfortunately, that's uh, not the case. Uh, there has been done surveys on it. Uh, for example, the International Federation of Medical Students Association did a survey last year uh, where they asked both student and faculty to document the type of climate health teaching that they have in their medical schools. And of almost 3,000 medical schools surveyed in 112 countries, only 15% said that they had climate health teaching in the curriculum, um, unfortunately. <laughs> Uh, So of the places where climate and planetary health does feature on the curriculum, how is that usually delivered or who is usually delivering it? Yeah, so that's a very good question. And quite interestingly, the same survey found that of those 15%, most were actually student-led. So there were students who were giving the education on the links in climate change and health. And this is quite characteristics, uh, characteristic, sorry, I would say for medical students and climate change is that we are the future doctors, but the current climate leaders. So we are leading the way for including climate change into the medical curriculum. And the bottom line is that a change in climate needs a change in curriculum and medical students, we are calling to increase climate health teaching in the education. And uh, we hope that the schools will answer. That was Esmeralda Perez, and we'll be releasing an extended interview where we hear more about some of the initiatives IDE have engaged with to get more climate material on medical curricula. And I just think there are so many parallels with what needs to happen in medicine and pretty much every industry. So I find it inspiring that there are medical students leading the way in that area. Still to come, Ellen explains the carbon cycle, and we chat to Caroline White live from COP26. But now it's time for the Irish Enviro event guide. Hello and welcome to this week's Irish Enviro event guide for the 8th to the 14th of November. Friends, I've said it before and I'll say it again. The arts and creativity have a fundamental role to play in tackling the climate crisis. TCD and Broken Talkers agree and are hosting in-person workshops for participants to creatively address what matters to them on the topic of climate change. The first of the workshops, which are titled Rising, is taking place in Trinity College on Tuesday the 9th at 10am. Register for free through eventbrite.ie. The EPA are hosting their 2021 AIR conference, which is taking place online on Wednesday the 10th of November. This conference is titled Something in the Air, 
and is open to anyone interested in learning more about our deteriorating air quality, how it impacts us, and how we can improve it. There's something in the air, all right? I hope it's the wind of change. Register for free through epa.ie. Tune in to a concert for climate action live streamed from San Francisco and Vienna. The Royal Irish Academy are hosting an in-person concert screening and panel discussion on Friday the 12th at 7pm in Trinity College Dublin. If you aren't able to attend in person, the event is also available online, so lucky you can attend this global concert from the comfort of your own home. Register for free through eventbrite.ie. Our good friends over at the Act Now Collective are hosting the first of their in-person eco-film nights Friday the 12th of November from 7 to 9pm. The film that's being screened is called Closing the Loop and is about the circular economy. Everyone is welcome to attend. The screening will take place in the cosy spot above the health food shop Art of Eating on George's Street in Dublin 2. There'll be time for discussion afterwards, along with a natural progression towards the local pub for continued chats. We hope that you can join us. Tickets are €5 by donation through eventbrite.ie. And before I go, one final shout out to the global climate strike happening tomorrow, Saturday 6th of November. Tomorrow is a global day of action and the world is watching. Please, if you can, Make your way to the Garden of Remembrance at 12pm and join the movement for global climate justice. That's it for this week's events. Links to the mentioned events can be found in the description of this week's episode and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter for a detailed roundup. If you know of any events taking place, get in touch with us at climatealarmclock at gmail.com. Thanks, Kira. And if you are one of our eager listeners tuning in on Friday, do make sure to try and find your nearest March for Climate Justice on tomorrow, Saturday, the 6th of November. Now, before our science explainer, we're going back to COP26 and chatting to Caroline White from FASTA, who's over in Glasgow. So I started off by asking her to introduce herself and tell us about FASTA. Sure. Thanks very much, Dara. Delighted to be in, to be talking on your podcast. Um, so I'm with a group that's called FASTA. It's a charity, an NGO, uh, and FASTA stands for the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability. And we have our legal base in Ireland, uh, but we actually have international membership. We have people in quite a few countries. And our big focus at the COP is climate safety and justice. So, you know, what we're really focusing on is, is upstream measures to change the economy so that it can fit within environmental limits and that also serves everybody's needs in a fair way. And very specifically at the COP, we're, we're promoting a campaign that's called Cap Global Carbon. And the idea behind that is to try and impose a hard, legally binding cap on the production of fossil fuels. So not just emissions as they come out into the economy, but where they enter the economy in the first place with the, you know, the oil and gas and coal production. So we're saying that companies ought to be forced to pay for permits to produce the fossil fuel and that there should be a limited amount of permits available and needs to be phased out year by year so there are fewer and fewer permits. So that will automatically then 
affect the whole economy because there'll be less fossil fuel coming into the economy in the first place. So that's what we're, that's our big focus. We also are very focused on making sure that any funds that are generated from those permits get shared out to everybody because that would make an enormous difference to climate finance. Um, at the moment, as we all know, there's a big shortfall. There's not enough money going to the global south. There's not enough money going to vulnerable people. And if we can get those funds divert or um, shared out properly, among everybody who deserves them because the commons, the atmosphere is a kind of commons that belongs to everybody. If we can do that, that will make such a difference. It will tilt the whole balance and it will ensure that people in the global south get their fair share of energy access in the future. So that's our focus at the COP. Well, it sounds like a pretty good plan to me, I must say. Uh, what does the day to day of what you're doing over in COP look like then? Um, well, uh, this is, I've had three days now where I've been in the blue zone, which is, you know, the restricted part of the COP. And um, in some ways, I find it's kind of like a microcosm of what's going on in the outside world, because there's this big crush of people trying to get in from outside. And there's no distancing or anything in the queue, so it's quite strange. And then when you're actually getting in, it's, it's a bit like an airport, you know, that's, that handles discount flights because first everybody's piled up together and then you're herded into a long, windy, snaking queue and then to another one and so on. And then you put through multiple security checks. And then once you're inside, it still feels like an airport because there's all this hustle and bustle and there are screens up, you know, with events listed on them that are like, you know, airplanes taking off and coming landing. So it's quite a strange atmosphere. Um, but most importantly, perhaps, is this huge imbalance in terms of the actual people who are present, just like in an, in an airport, again, because there's only a small minority of people around the world who have access to the COP, just as very few people actually have access to flights in the world. And the, it's, it's not completely white and Western, and you do see some diversity, but proportionally, it's way, way out of whack. Um, and you hear stories about people from NGOs in the global south who are spending days or even weeks trying to get here and they're not even having access to meetings or events. And if you can't access an event, you get told that you can stream it and you have a QR code you can scan and all of that. But the system's very buggy. So, you know, the streaming doesn't always work. So there's some frustration about that. Um, you can't access any of the negotiations or most of the informal meetings. And so our aim in FASTA is really mainly to network with other NGOs and to exchange ideas and try to build capacity and build a movement. Um, and from that point of view, it's, it's harder to... It's, it's harder in the sense that everybody is, you know, masked and it's a little hard to make connections and so on. But I have a lot of hope that, for example, the marches tomorrow will be a good, will be a good opportunity to share ideas and build, you know, capacity and so on. And then in terms of the sort of big outcomes, you know, the overall outcomes from COP, what, what are you hoping for or do you have, <laughs> do you have any hope in that regard? <laughs> well, to be brutally frank, I don't really expect um, the specific things we're asking for to be, you know, adopted by the large countries at the end of this COP. I think that would be a little bit unrealistic, unfortunately. Um, what I'm hoping for is a narrative shift, um, you know, to the, for things to be brought into what they call the Overton window, um, you know, things that can be discussed, things that are considered appropriate to discuss. I'm hoping to see um, a change in that. Um, I'm hoping to see, you know, more talk about capping fossil fuel supply, also more talk about climate dividends, giving out, you know, the, the revenue from selling fossil fuel permits to people. Um, and, and linking that in with things like basic income, which has become much easier to talk about since COVID. Everybody's talking about it now, which is great. 
That was Caroline White from FASTA. We had a great chat with her and she gave a really brilliant insight into COP26. So keep an eye on our social media pages for the extended version of that interview where you can find out even more about what goes on at COP. And what she said about capping fossil fuel consumption is pretty apt in terms of this week's science explainer where Ellen explains the carbon cycle. Carbon is the foundation of all life on Earth, and it is found in everything, from the bodies of plants and animals, to the waters in our oceans, from the air that we breathe to the fuel that we burn. We are all part of the carbon cycle. The amount of carbon on Earth hasn't changed since the planet formed around 5 billion years ago, when scientists think it might have arrived here on a comet or through an interplanetary collision. What does change is where that carbon can be found. Most of the Earth's carbon has been stored in rocks and sediments, but carbon is constantly moving between different reservoirs, as well as changing between organic and inorganic forms. For example, a volcanic eruption spews carbon from deep in the Earth into the atmosphere. That carbon might then be absorbed into the ocean, where it could be used to form a clam's shell. When the clam dies its shell sinks to the seafloor where over time it becomes part of the sedimentary rock. Over millions of years, and of course with the natural exertion of a whole lot of heat and pressure, these sediments can go on to become oil. This is just one example of how carbon cycles through our Earth system via a complex web of interactions. Oceans and forests are examples of what are known as carbon sinks. This means that they absorb and store carbon from the atmosphere. Volcanoes are examples of carbon sources, meaning they release carbon into our atmosphere. Over time, the carbon cycle maintains a balance between the amount of carbon being released into and absorbed out of our atmosphere, and this is what keeps our temperature relatively stable. But problems occur when this natural cycle is disrupted. Remember that oil we mentioned earlier? Well, if it stays in the ground, the carbon won't affect the climate. But if we dig it up and burn it, it combines with oxygen in the atmosphere to create carbon dioxide, which causes the planet to heat up. And humans have been burning oil and other fossil fuels at an exceptional rate. This means that we are releasing carbon into the atmosphere that would otherwise have remained underground. The sheer speed of this on a geological scale means that the carbon cycle does not have time to react. The ocean has absorbed a significant portion of our emissions to date, but there is only so much carbon that the ocean can store. And the extra carbon makes the ocean more acidic, and this puts many marine animals at risk. Other important sinks are also feeling the strain, like our peatlands here in Ireland, which are so depleted that they are emitting more carbon than our forestry captures. It has also been discovered recently that parts of the Amazon rainforest have now become a source of CO2 rather than a sink, largely due to forest fires. If we are to reverse or just lessen the effects of climate change, we need to stop interfering with the Earth's carbon cycle. This means protecting our remaining carbon sinks, like peatlands and forests, and leaving fossil fuels in the ground. That was Ellen Hegarty really framing what needs to happen at COP26 from a scientific perspective there. 
that is it for this week we started the episode by talking about the overwhelm of all the cop coverage so if you've made it to the end of the episode fair play to you I definitely feel the better for having spoken to Kira, Anna and indeed Caroline so hopefully you feel the better for listening talking about climate change and taking action are hugely important things that you can do so if you can attend your nearest climate justice march on the 6th of november or reach out to little green growers or pocket forests and get planting we'll be back with more cop chats and our features including the final part of the meme bog story next week until then goodbye <laughs>